reverence to all Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Arya Shravakas, and Pracheka Buddhas in the past, the present, and the future. Thus have I heard. At one time, the Lord Buddha was in residence in the garden of Amrapali, in the city of Vaishali, attended by a great gathering. Of big shoes, there were 8,000, all arahants. They were free from impurities and afflictions. They had all attained self-mastery. Their minds were entirely liberated by perfect wisdom. They were calm and dignified like royal elephants. They had accomplished their work, done what they had to do, cast off their burdens, attained their goals, and totally destroyed the bonds of existence. They had all attained the utmost perfection in mastery of their thoughts. Of bodhisattvas, there were 32,000 great spiritual heroes who were universally acclaimed. They were dedicated through the penetrating activity of their great super-knowledges and were sustained by the grace of the Buddha. Guardians of the city of the Dharma. They upheld the true Dharma and their great teachings resounded like the lion's roar throughout the ten directions. Without having to be asked, they were the natural spiritual friends of all living beings. That's how the Vimlakirti Nidesha begins. Not only were they, there were 8,000 bhikshus and 32,000 bodhisattvas, there were also 10,000 Brahmas at their head, Brahma Sikkim, who had come from the Ashoka universe with its four sectors to see, venerate and serve the Buddha and to hear the Dharma from his own mouth. 12,000 chakras from various four-sector universes. And there were other powerful gods, Brahmas, Chakras, Lokapalas, Devas, Nagas, Yakshas, Gandharvas, Ashuras, Garudas, Kimnaras and Maharagas. Finally, there was the fourfold community consisting of bhikshus, bhikshunis, laymen and laywomen. This is the opening of the Vimalakirti Nadesha. The Lord Buddha, thus surrounded and venerated by these multitudes of many hundreds of thousands of living beings, sat upon a majestic lion throne and began to teach the Dhamma. Dominating all the multitudes, just as Sumeru, the king of mountains, looms high over the oceans, the Lord Buddha shone radiated and glittered as he sat upon his magnificent lion throne. That's how it begins. We're just outside the city of Vaishali, massive city, in the uh, Republic of Lichavi. 
And we're in Amrapali's garden. Now, Amrapali was a courtesan, which I think is a posh name for a prostitute, isn't it? She was extremely beautiful, so beautiful that she was now rich. And she became a follower of the Buddha, and she gave him this garden just outside the city because the Buddha didn't like to stay in cities. So whenever anybody gave him some land, he said, make sure it's outside of the city. So there they are, just outside the city of Vaishali, in this beautiful garden donated by Amrapali. Surrounded by these tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of beings, human and non-human. And then, 500 youths come from the city, headed by Ratnakara. They came to see the Buddha, and they circumambulated the Buddha seven times. Each had a parasol made of precious jewels, and each one of them offered that parasol to the Buddha. And then the Buddha did something. As soon as these precious parasols had been laid down, suddenly, by the miraculous power of the Blessed One, they were transformed into a single precious canopy. So great that it formed a covering for this entire billion world galaxy. The surface of the entire billion world galaxy was reflected in the interior of this great precious canopy. Where the total content of this galaxy could be seen. Limitless mansions of suns, moons and stellar bodies. All the great oceans, rivers bays, torrents, streams, brooks and springs. Finally, all the villages, suburbs, cities, capitals, provinces and wildernesses. All this could be clearly seen by everyone. And the voices of all the Buddhas of the Ten Directions could be heard proclaiming their teachings of the Dharma in all the worlds, the sounds reverberating in the space between the great precious canopy. Isn't that absolutely amazing? And then Ratnakara praises the Buddha in the most beautiful verses, which we will hear if you come this evening to this evening's slideshow and Verses uh, will have these beautiful verses in the form of a puja. But we haven't got time for them right now. But then Ratnakara asked the Buddha a question. Blessed one, these 500 young lichavis are truly on their way to unexcelled perfect enlightenment. And they have asked, what is the Bodhisattva's purification of the Buddha field? Please, Lord, explain to them the Bodhisattva's purification of the Buddha field. So, a little bit of explanation is needed here. What does this mean, the purification of a Buddha field? What is a Buddha field and what does it mean to purify it? So, we're in the Mahayana now, the great way. 
And uh, the Mahayana vision, as you can have, you've heard already, is magnificent. So in the Mahayana vision of practicing the Dharma, we're practicing in the context of the cosmos. Many cosmoses, in a way, many, many universes. We live in a multiverse. And there are different galaxies, different universes in all the ten directions. And each one of these has a Buddha. Yeah? And they get, there are millions. Talk about aeons. There are millions, trillions of galaxies in all the different directions. And each one of them has a Buddha. So many, many Buddha lands. <coughs> and some of the Buddha lands are impure Buddha lands. And some of them are pure Buddha lands. I've translated, I've changed Buddha field into Buddha land now. Uh, the word is Buddha Kshetra which means something like land. So it's a Buddha land. So some are pure and some are impure. What does it mean to have an impure Buddha land? An impure Buddha land is one where beings are afflicted by the three unwholesome roots of greed, hatred and delusion. Yeah? And because they are afflicted by these unwholesome roots, they suffer. So in Buddha lands, there's, uh, impure Buddha lands, there's greed, hatred and delusion, and there are the Dugatis. The Dugatis are the realms of suffering, the hell realms, the hungry ghost realm, the animal realm, and the anti-god realm. These four realms are the realms of suffering, the Dugatis, and people end up there because of greed, hatred and delusion. In our terms, uh, if we take it out of that kind of... Um, Indian mythological way of seeing it, what that means is in impure Buddha lands, there is just an awful lot of suffering. There is war, there is torture, there is bombs, there is um, all sorts of uh, unfortunate happenings, there is false accusations, there are people being imprisoned falsely, there's poverty, there's cruelty, there's ending of relationships, there's people falling out, there are words used like daggers against one another. It's awful. A lot of what happens in an impure Buddha land is awful. We live in an impure Buddha land. Yep. A pure Buddha land is peopled by humans and gods only. A pure Buddha land has no greed, hatred and delusion in it. And because of that, there's no suffering. There are just beings on their way to enlightenment, unimpaired progress. We don't live in one of those. We live in an impure Buddha land, as you know from your own experience. So what a bodhisattva does is they try to purify an impure Buddha land. That's what a bodhisattva is basically doing. So... These 500 literary youths want to know, how do you do that? The Buddha says, good, good young man. Your question about the purification of the Buddha field is indeed good. Therefore, young man, listen well and engrave it on your mind. I will explain to you the purification of the Buddha field of the Bodhisattvas. Excellent, O blessed one, 
replied Ratnakara. And the 500 young Lichavis, and they set themselves to listen. The Buddha said, Noble sons, a Buddha field of bodhisattvas is a field of living beings. And why is it so? A bodhisattva embraces a Buddha field to the same extent that he causes the development of living beings. I'll say that again. A bodhisattva embraces a Buddha field to the same extent that he causes the development of living beings. He embraces a Buddha field to the same extent that living beings become disciplined. He embraces a Buddha field to the same extent that through entrance into a Buddha field, living beings penetrate the wisdom of the Buddhas. So we've heard that a Bodhisattva is purifying a Buddha field. And in his lecture, uh, Sangracha's lecture, Building the Buddha Land, he changes the terminology from purifying a Buddha field into building a Buddha field. And if you don't know that lecture, you really must listen to that lecture. It is absolutely tremendous. In fact, the whole of the eight lectures on the Vimalakirti Nidesha is, in my experience, Banti's best ever series of lectures. Quite wonderful. But anyway, coming back to here. We've heard purification of a Buddha field and we've heard building a Buddha land. But here's a new term now, which every time I go back to the Vimalakirti Nidesha, I notice something new. I noticed this a couple of days ago. A bodhisattva embraces a Buddha field. So rather than purifying, rather than building, now we're embracing. Embracing. Upa Brima Hayanti. From upabri, this is Sanskrit, which means to press with the arms or cling closely. To embrace closely or passionately. Obviously, this suggests <coughs> love, affection, even attachment. To accept Lovingly, the antonym of embrace is exclude. So it's the opposite of exclusion, it's embracing, loving. <clears throat> so what might it mean to embrace a Buddha land? In that a Buddha field or a Buddha land is a field of living beings, as we've just heard, then it means, it must mean, <clears throat> to embrace those living beings. It means to love them, to have positive intentions towards them, to wish the best for them. Hence, the day tomorrow is dedicated to the practice of the four Brahma-viharas, the four positive emotions of love, compassion, gladness and equanimity. And what is the best that we can possibly give other living beings. The Dharma, of course, the Dharma. Because the Dharma helps us to overcome greed, hatred and delusion, helps us to alleviate suffering for ourselves and others. That's the best that we can give people. 
It's the means to develop, the means to realise freedom, wisdom, enlightenment. And that's why during the week from Monday to Friday we'll be exploring the four Sangrahavastus, the four means of unification. Uh, I've been looking up on Google the four Sangrahavastus. There's not an awful lot of hits you get when you put the four Sangrahavastus in there. Um, You don't get pages and pages like you do with some things. You get about three or four things. Uh, But uh, one of the translations is the four means of gathering disciples. So to embrace a Buddha field is to love living beings. I've been reading a very interesting book called Love (laughs) 2.0. It's a new book. It's by Barbara Fredrickson, who for the past 20 years has been researching positive emotions. And she's written this book. She's written another one years ago called Positivity. She's written this new one called Love 2.0. Why 2.0? Something to do with computers. It's something to do with an upgrade. So basically what she's saying in the book is we need to upgrade our understanding of what love is. Yeah, she's basically talking about meta, and the second half of the book is mainly to do with the meta bhavana. But the first half of the book is all about what love really is. And uh, she makes a very interesting point. She said, we've got all these ideas about love, uh, about it being a bond and it being to do with sexual, uh, romantic uh, love, and it's a bond between two people maybe, or it's to do with family. She says, forget all that. It's very, very simple, love. Love is what happens when two people meet, they get on, and there's connection between the eyes. And it's fleeting. There's no such thing as long-lasting love. Love is an emotion that comes and goes. It comes into existence based on conditions, and then it goes out of existence when those conditions are no longer there. Simple, isn't it? So love is simply what happens when two people get on really well so you could you could be sitting next to someone on the train you've hardly met before you start getting on really well you there's a lot of positivity between you what she calls positivity resonance happens and that's it that's love yeah that's all it is and then it goes so there's no such thing as long-lasting love but you can bring it into existence again and again and again so what i'd like you to do now is look around and catch people's eyes and smile. That's love. That's meta. That's all it is. It's so simple, isn't it? It's so easy. The great love of the Bodhisattva is simply that. Yeah? Now you're all loved up. I can see it. <laughs> I can see in your eyes, and now I'm getting it back. Thank you very much. It's fantastic. So this is all that we have to do. This is to embrace a Buddha field, to embrace a Buddha land. And of course, it's all happening here with just a few people, and millions of people out there. But in principle, we want this for everybody. And that's why the Buddhist centre is right in the centre of town. More of that later. Let's continue. The Buddha continues. He embraces a Buddha field to the extent, to the same extent that through entrance into the Buddha field, living beings increase their noble spiritual faculties. And why is it so? Noble son, a Buddha field 
of Bodhisattvas springs from the aims of living beings. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is a field of positive intentions. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is a field of high resolve, is a field of effort, is the magnificence of the conception of the spirit of enlightenment. In other words, the bodhicitta. Is a field of generosity, is a field of patience, is a field of meditation, is a field of wisdom. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field consists of the four immeasurables. There they are again. When he attains enlightenment, living beings who live by love, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity will be born in his Buddha field. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field consists of the four means of unification. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is skillful means consists of the 37 aids to enlightenment. You know what they are. (laughs) This is going right back to the Pali Canon. And this is the list of lists. The 37 is a list of lists. It's the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Spiritual Faculties, the Threefold Ways, and one or two others. (laughs) The Bodhisattva's Buddha field is transference of merit is the doctrine that eradicates the eight adversities, consists of the personal observance of the basic precepts and restraint in blaming others for their transgressions. A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is the purity of the path of the ten precepts. Order members, the ten precepts. In other words... A Bodhisattva's Buddha field is a field of practice. Practice, practice, practice. May there be no limits to practice. A Buddha field, a Buddha land, is a land of unlimited practice. Love and practice. That's all a Buddha field consists of. Then comes a piece of comedy and magic. This is a marvellous thing about the Vimalakirti Nadeshi. You get these life-changing teachings. And then there's a bit of pantomime. So here comes a bit of pantomime. And it involves poor old Shariputra. Shariputra really gets it in the neck in this text. Uh, Actually... He's used as a caricature because the actual, real, historical Shariputra is a bull of a man. He's a lion of a man. He's a great spiritual hero, fully enlightened. One of the two chief disciples of the Buddha. Unfortunately for him, the Mahayana uses him as a kind of caricature for everything's wrong, everything that's wrong, as the Mahayana see it, with the Hinayana. But anyway, just take it that in this text, Sariputra is the full guy. So the Buddha has said, just said something along the lines of that a Buddha field reflects the purity of the Buddha. A Buddha field reflects the purity of the Buddha's mind. So Sariputra thinks, hey, well, if that's so, this Buddha field is impure. That means the Buddha's mind must be impure then. 
the Buddha knows what Shariputra is thinking. Unfortunately for Shariputra, the Buddha knows. And he exposes him. He says, did you just think that? He said, yeah, I just thought that. <laughs> and so, thereupon, the Buddha touched the ground of this billion-world galactic universe. Touched the ground of this billion-world galactic universe with his big toe, and suddenly it's transformed into a huge mass of precious jewels. A magnificent array of many hundreds of thousands of clusters of precious gems, until it resembled the universe of the Buddha, jeweled adornment. The universe called jeweled adornments, land of immeasurable blessings. Everyone in the entire assembly was filled with wonder, each perceiving himself or herself seated on a throne of jewelled lotuses. In other words, the Buddha transformed this impure land into a pure land. Everyone perceived him or herself sitting on a jewelled lotus. What can this mean? How do you perceive yourself, I wonder? How do you think of yourself? What's your self-image? What story do you tell yourself as you're going about your daily life? <clears throat> what kind of person do you think you are? Where have you come from? Do you think of yourself as a teacher, a mother, a father, a good person, a not very good person, a bit of a low life? How do you conceive of yourself? Because it's important how you conceive of yourself. When I look round, I see a bunch of decent human beings. But I could see you all seated on jeweled thrones, jeweled lotuses. I could see you like that. Imagine if I saw you like that. How would I treat you then? What's it mean to be seated on a jeweled lotus? Only Buddhas sit on lotuses. That's what it means. So although we see ourselves as like maybe a decent human being trying their best, maybe not doing so well in this world, maybe we're much more than that. I remember Sangharakshita saying, you know, a stream entrant, you, you become a stream entrant, you break the three fetters, and then another seven lives at most, and you'll gain enlightenment. He said, well, maybe you're a stream entrant, you're just having a bit of an off life at the moment. <laughs> you know, like some people have an off day, they're usually really good, and now they're having an off day. Well, maybe we're just stream entrant, we're having off lives this particular lifetime. Or bodhisattvas, maybe we're bodhisattvas. Yeah. Maybe really what we really look like is nothing like the way we see each other. Maybe we're something vastly different. There was a scholar of um, uh, Homer. Not that Homer, I mean. <laughs> you have to say that kind of thing these days because people have heard more of Homer Simpson than they have of the great Homer. But, you know, he wrote the Odysseus and... Um, the Odyssey, I mean, and Odysseus was the hero. And uh, every time he refers to Odysseus, he, he usually refers to him as the epithet, that great hero. 
And this scholar had noticed that he calls him the great hero when, even when he's running away from somebody, not acting very heroically at all. Then the great hero ran away. Yeah. And he made the point that Odysseus was a great hero, but maybe he wasn't a great hero all the time. Yeah. But on the whole, he was a great hero. And Sangarachta um, was once asked about uh, tulkus. You know, tulkus uh, in Tibet, uh, some babies born, and they get recognised as this great bodhisattva. Yeah, this is a great bodhisattva. And then they get taken away to a monastery and they get treated as a great bodhisattva as a child and they grow up, everyone thinking they're a fantastic being. And even if they're not, particularly outstanding as a human being, what the point Sangharakshita made about this, having known some of these people, is they're very, very healthy beings because they've been treated with such love and respect all of their lives. So imagine if we understood that we were surrounded by great beings. Yeah. Imagine if we perceived of ourselves as bodhisattvas. Yeah really seated on jeweled lotuses. Imagine if we understood ourselves in that kind of way. And if we treat each other with the greatest of respect and love all the time, what effect that would have. I'm sure you've been in a situation where you've not been treated with respect. And what effect that has on you. How that kind of dampens the spirit. And then other times where you've been treated, you come into a room and people are delighted to see you. Oh, hello, great to see you. And how it lifts the spirit. So I wonder if we could see ourselves like that. See ourselves on one another in that kind of way. Then the Lord withdrew his miraculous power and at once the Buddha field was restored to its usual appearance. However, 32,000 living beings purified their immaculate, undistorted Dharma eye in regard to all things. The 8,000 bhikshus were liberated, thought they were liberated already. They were liberated from their mental defilements, attaining the state of non-grasping. And the 84,000 living beings who were devoted to the grandeur of the Buddha field, having understood that all things are by nature but magical creations, all conceived in their own minds the spirit of unexcelled, totally perfect enlightenment. In other words, the bodhicitta arose in 84,000 beings. It's big, isn't it? Chapter 2. At that time, there lived in the great city of Vaishali a certain lichavi. Vimlakirti by name. Having served the ancient Buddhas, he had generated the roots of virtue by honouring them and making offerings to them. He had penetrated the profound way of the Dharma. He was liberated through the transcendence of wisdom. Having integrated his realisation with skilful means, he was expert in knowing the thoughts and actions of living beings. Knowing the strength or weakness of their faculties and being gifted with unrivaled eloquence, he taught the Dharma appropriately to each. In order to develop living beings with his skillful means, he lived in the great city of Vaishali. 
His wealth was inexhaustible for the purpose of sustaining the poor and the helpless. He observed a pure morality in order to protect the immoral. He maintained patience and self-control in order to reconcile beings who were angry, cruel, violent and brutal. He blazed with energy in order to inspire people who were lazy. He maintained concentration, mindfulness and meditation in order to sustain the mentally troubled. He attained decisive wisdom in order to sustain the foolish. He wore the white clothes of the layman yet lived impeccably like a renunciant. He lived at home, but remained aloof from the realm of desire. He had a son, a wife, a female attendance, yet always maintained celibacy. He appeared to be surrounded by servants, yet lived in solitude. He appeared to be adorned with ornaments, yet was always endowed with the auspicious signs and marks. He seemed to eat and drink, yet always took nourishment from the taste of meditation. He made his appearance at the field of sports and in the casinos, but his aim was always to mature those people who attached to games and gambling. In order to be in harmony with people, he associated with elders, with those of middle age and with the young. Yet, always spoke in harmony with the Dharma. He engaged in all sorts of businesses, yet had no interest in profit or possessions. To train living beings, he would appear at crossroads and on street corners, and to protect them, he participated in government. To develop children, he visited all the schools. In order to expose the defects of sexual desire, he even entered the brothels. To establish drunkards in correct mindfulness, he entered all the bars. This is Vimlakirti. As a skillful means, he made it known that he was ill. To inquire after his health, the king, the officials, the lords, the youths, the aristocrats, the householders, the businessmen, the town folk, the country folk, and thousands of other living beings came forth from the great city of Vaishali and called on the invalid. When they arrived, Vimalakirti taught them the Dharma. And then, for the rest of the text, he's in bed. Apparently ill. And everyone comes to see him. The next two chapters after this one actually are flashbacks. He's not in bed in the next two chapters, but they're flashbacks to earlier times. But in real time, in cinematic terms, he's in bed. All the way through. Did you notice how that chapter began? At that time. This is three crucial words, because it's... Uh, this has just happened after the first chapter. So in the first chapter, we've got this amazing picture, haven't we, of the Buddha shining, glittering, radiating on this magnificent lion throne with thousands of beings all around him. It's an amazing picture, the ideal Buddha, not the actual historical Buddha. This is kind of the ideal Buddha in ideal surroundings, almost like a pure land in Amrapali's park. Then we come to Vimlakirti, and Amrapali's park, remember, it's outside of the city. And then we go into the city, into Vimalakirti's sick room. 
in bed, yeah, right in the centre of the city. Two locations, two beings. While the Buddha is in this ideal situation outside of the city, talking about pure lands and the purification of and the embracing of pure lands and how to do that, Vimalakirti is in the city doing it. Because a big question arises here, Vimalakirti is a bodhisattva, why isn't he, why is he messing about, pretending to be ill in the city, when he could be a few, you know, hundred yards outside of the city, he could be with the Buddha. And that's his duty, actually. All bodhisattvas, their duty, whenever possible, is to go and visit the Buddha and listen to his teachings. Why isn't Vimalakirti doing that? Because he's doing what the Buddha's talking about. The first chapter is all about the ideal. The second chapter is the beginning of the real. How do you actually do what the Buddha was talking about? How do you do that? How do you bring the ideal into the real? And the real is right there in the centre of the city and it's messy. Yeah, He's ill. His nose is probably running. Probably there's a fog in his room. And illness in, the, in this uh, text really is a metaphor for dukkha, for suffering. He is suffering. But nevertheless, he's purifying the Buddha field. Vimalakirti is actually an impossible character, isn't he? We can't possibly emulate him. How could we do all that? How could we do all of that? That he's—it's just absolutely amazing. He's not really a human being. What is he? How can we understand Vimalakirti? There are many ways to understand Vimalakirti. I'm just going to today, now, this evening, I'll put another one forward. But just today, what I want to suggest is Vimalakirti is not a single person. Perhaps we can understand Vimalakirti as a sangha, a collection of people working and practicing together. So if we understood it that way, let's go back. His wealth was inexhaustible for the purpose of sustaining the poor and the helpless. Yeah? Not his wealth, but the wealth of the sangha. In order to be in harmony with people, he associated with elders, with those of middle age and with the young, yet always spoke in harmony with the Dharma. Think in terms of Sangha here. He engaged in all sorts of businesses, yet had no interest in profit or possessions. Think in terms of our Sangha, yeah? our local Manchester Sangha, in the centre of the city. And we're all ill, aren't we? We're all ill. We all suffer. We all experience greed, hurt and delusion. And we suffer because of that. We could engage in all sorts of businesses. Some of us do. Some of us engage in uh, right livelihood businesses in order to spread the Dharma. And we have no interest in profit or possessions. To train living beings, he would appear at crossroads and on street corners. How many of you do that, I wonder? Yeah. Just hang out 
there in the city, ready to talk to anyone. To develop children, he visited all the schools. Well, actually, the schools visit us, don't they? We don't need to go out there, but they do. Schools visit here. Many, many school visits happen here. He is the queen of the school visits over here, Manisha. <laughs> in order to expose the defects of sexual desire, he even entered the brothels. Now, who? <laughs> Which one of you does that? Maybe somebody does. To establish drunkards in correct mindfulness, he entered all the bars. There's loads of bars around here. So in other words, we can't do everything. In ourselves, just one person can't do everything. But as a Sangha, we can do so much. So if we could just understand our Sangha as Vimalakirti, as a Bodhisattva, so that instead of thinking of ourselves as... There's a debate going on in our order at the moment about attainments um, should we say should we proclaim that we've had certain attainments like maybe somebody just a couple of people saying they're now stream entrants um, should we say that should we make that clear I'm now a stream entrant I'm not saying that by the way but <laughs> if you did or I actually I'm a bodhisattva the bodhicitta has arisen within me now should we say that there's, there's a debate about this at the moment personally I think it's best if we don't Personally, I don't think it's very healthy to think about where I'm at. You know, where am I at now? Am I a stream entrant? No, I'm much more than that. I'm a once-returner. Am I? Uh, why? Why do that? Why even think about it? Rather than think in terms of attainments, it's better, I think, to think in terms of how much am I participating in my sangha? Yeah? How much am I participating in my sangha? Now, it, some, you know, that's partly um, limited by how much time you've got to be with the Sangha. But I don't mean that. I don't mean how many hours do I go down to the Buddhist centre. I mean how much, how open I am I with members of the Sangha? How much do I give? Not in terms of money or time, but how much of myself am I able to give? Are my barriers breaking down? The boundaries that I have around me, are they breaking down? Do I love more than I used to? Do I feel compassion? Am I glad when other people are getting on very well? Do I feel that? I think that's a better question to ask rather than where am I at? And then, if you really do give yourself in that kind of way, you don't need to tell people where you're at. It'd be totally obvious. You know, you won't need to say, oh, I'm a stream entrant, by the way. So... You- <laughs> You better listen to me now. I'm going to say something wise because I'm a stream entrant. <laughs> well, you won't need to because people will love you so much and they'll see with their own eyes. You know, there's a problem, isn't it? If somebody says you're a stream entrant, then you know what I do. I say, are they? They don't act like one to me. Is that a stream entrant, really? It doesn't really help, does it? It doesn't really add anything to a conversation. It just, all I know now is that you think you're a stream entrant. That's, that's the only thing that I know. It doesn't convince me that you are one, because you could be deluded. So why even think about it? Just forget it. Forget yourself. And just participate in the Sangha. So limitless practice doesn't just mean the amount of practice. It means the conception, the magnificence of the conception of the spirit of enlightenment, to quote 
the Buddha. There's a lovely little bit. Talking about Vimalakirti, the text says, he was in harmony with ordinary people because he appreciated the excellence of ordinary merits. Isn't that lovely? That's uh, Furman's translation. Here's Etienne Lamotte's translation from the Tibetan into the French and then translated from the French into English by Sarah Boyne, who used to be a member of our order. Because he caused ordinary, ordinary merits to be highly appreciated, he was in harmony with the common people. So you've got this magnificent figure of Vimalakirti, tremendous character, who was in harmony with ordinary people because he appreciated the excellence of ordinary merits. So I don't know how you conceive of yourself. You might conceive of yourself as an ordinary kind of person which is healthy, I think. But your ordinary merits are important. They are so important because they are the basis of the bodhicitta. Yeah? And Vimalakirti really appreciates those in us. So we can appreciate our ordinary merits. We don't have to be anything special. We don't have to be any great being in order to practice and build the Buddha land, embrace the Buddha field. We're just who we are, doing our best. And those ordinary merits will be appreciated. So if we, again we turn this around and instead of thinking of Vimalakirti as a person and think of Vimalakirti as a Sangha, the Sangha was in harmony with ordinary people because it appreciates the excellence of ordinary merits because they are the basis of our practice. As I say, for the rest of the text, Vimalakirti is in bed, ill, as a skillful means, and thousands and thousands of people come to see him over the course of the, uh, the whole text. But not only people, but beings. So from another land, a pure land, many, many uh, kalpas away, however long, you know, millions and millions of lifetimes away, they come. Massive beings made of perfume. They come and to Vimalakirti's house. How big is his house? So his house is very important. His house gets filled. Every chapter, thousands more beings go into the house. So by the end, by the 12th chapter, his house has got tens, hundreds, maybe millions of beings there practicing and listening to the Dharma. So his house, Vimalakirti's house, is him. Yeah. You know in early Buddhism there's this great um, emphasis on homelessness, <laughs> leaving home into homelessness. And this is the Buddha, the Buddha outside of town. He hasn't got a home, so he's staying for the moment in Amrapali's park. He's homeless. Vimalakirti has got a home, he's got a house. The house, as, as the Buddhist tradition went on, the house became a symbol for the self. So homelessness meant selfless. 
So you left home, you left the self. Vimala Kirch, instead of leaving his home, he just expands it. Yeah, he expands his house to include more and more people. Until in the end, it's kind of senseless to talk about a house. It's so big, it includes nearly the whole world, that <coughs> why talk about a house? So there are two ways you can go about achieving selflessness. One is to leave, and the other is to expand, to embrace a Buddha field. You embrace the Buddha field, your self gets bigger and bigger and bigger, not in the big-headed sense, of course, but heart sense. Your heart becomes bigger and bigger and bigger until there is no distinction between your home and other people's home. Everyone is welcome. Then what does he do? He's filled his house with thousands, tens of thousands, <coughs> hundreds of thousands of living beings. What does he do? He takes the lot to Amrapali's park, to the Buddha. Takes all these beings to see the Buddha. So, whereas up until then he was bringing the ideal into the real, now he takes the real into the ideal and the two locations become one. That is the conception of the Mahayana. This is really what we're doing. This is really what we're doing. It looks like we've got a nice centre in the centre of town, two floors, noisy yoga studio above, noise going on out there. But actually, this is what we're doing. This is what it means to have limitless practice. This is what it means to embrace a Buddha field. And we're going to do this for the next nine days.